All right. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Foolish Consequences of Sin. And I was thinking back to my childhood and thinking about some stories. And I thought back to a story of when I was walking home from school with a friend and we stopped in an alley behind a bar and uh, there was an abandoned building that had some windows kind of hidden in this one side and some of them were already broken so we were like well hey like some of them are already broken so you know pick up some rocks and batteries and let's just finish the job right and when you live in a town of 800 people people know who you are right you can't really hide and I went walked home to my grandma's house where I was staying after school and uh, I was sitting at the dining room table and saw the cop car pull into the driveway and I knew exactly why he was there. So I bolted into my grandma's room and she had one of those beds with like an old like big kind of headboard thing with like the cupboards in it and there was, so there was like space up underneath. So I got in there and like crawled up inside of there and Pete Yagi, the cop, came in, you know, to the bedroom. He's like, Josh, come on, come out. I'm not going to hurt you. And um, I, I knew I was probably going to get into some trouble. And, but then, I was, so I was thinking about this story, and I'm like, I don't even remember who I was with, who the kid was. So I called my mom uh, that night, Friday night, and I was like, you know, what's, what was going on? Like, did, did we have to pay for the windows? Did I get in trouble? And she told me the kid that I was with, and it just so happened that I was up in the attic, uh, and Cademan had a book that I had had at my mom's house, and he's, I was like, where'd you get that? He said, oh, in the box from Nainai, and so I went and looked, and I found all my grade school yearbooks, so I'm looking through, I'm like, when did that kid live in Argyle, you know? Kindergarten, like, because he moved away after that, so kindergarten, we're busting out windows, you know? And then so I'm like, well, you know, did I get in trouble? What happened? She goes, no, but, you know, you could tell him about the time when you wrecked my motorcycle and I took your license away for several months or all these other stories, which I'm not going to share with you. But, um, <laughs> but there is folly, there is foolishness associated with the choices that we make in our lives, isn't there? As young kids, right, we all did stupid things as kids. Kids, you all do foolish things, right, and you suffer the consequences. As parents, we, we think a lot about teaching our kids about consequences, right, consequences for your actions, because when you grow up and get out into the real world, there's going to be consequences for your actions, right? And all of us, if we look back, we see over our lives the foolishness of our choices. We see the consequences that we have, have suffered, And today we come to a story that has some serious consequences. We come to a story that is really pretty dark and depressing, and it should grieve us for every person involved. We might ask ourselves, why is this story in the Bible? Why would God put this here, right? Even, I mean, other horrible things happened, right? throughout the story of the people of Israel that aren't recorded in Scripture. Why did God put this in the Bible. If you're just visiting with us, we've been in Genesis since February. We've been going through the book of Genesis. We took a little break uh, for the summer, and we have seen the consequences of sin all over this book, haven't we? We've seen it right in the very beginning in chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God, and we see the consequences, right? We see what God says, the curse that he pronounces, right? The ground is going to be cursed. Adam, work is going to be hard for the rest of your life, right? Work is going to be hard for humanity for the rest of the time that we're on this earth, right? To Eve, she was going to have pain and childbearing. And then there's the curse between the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? The enmity that's going to come there. So we see the consequences of of sin there. 
chapter 6, right? We saw the flood. We saw how God wiped out all of humanity except for one family because of the wickedness of, of humans, because of the foolishness of their own ways that they walked in. We saw the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, how the people, they built this tower. They were trying to get to, get to heaven. They were trying to make a name for themselves. And they suffered the consequences by God spreading them out. Then we're introduced to, to Abraham in chapter 12, right? He's the hero. He's the guy who's going who's gonna to come and be the blessing to the world. But then we see him being a fool, right? We see all his children being fools. And now we've been in the life of Jacob, his grandson. And Jacob has just been continually stumbling and falling and being a fool. I think this story here is probably one of the darkest stories in the history of the people of Israel. It's one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. Probably the only thing I can think of that would parallel is Judges chapter 19, the Levite and his concubine, which has a lot of similar language to this story, a very dark and depressing story. This is not something you're going to find in a children's picture Bible, right? You're not going to see this story. So what is going on here? Again, we need to be reminded of Jacob and who he is. He's been, he's been running from his brother Esau. He stole the birthright. He stole the blessing. Jacob's name means deceiver and schemer. He's running from his uncle. He's running from God, right? And just last, in the last few weeks, we've seen in chapters 32 and chapter 33, God finally gets a hold of him, right? God wrestles him to the ground. He wounds his hip. He gives him a new name, right? Jacob, you are now Israel. I'm going to do something great. I'm going to continue the work that I've been doing, but I'm going to do something great in you and through you. So he met the Lord. He met Esau. And he has changed. But... (laughs) He's not quite there yet, right? Both literally and figuratively, he is not quite there yet. And I think we can relate to that, right? We can relate to the life of Jacob. Two weeks ago, we looked at how he was almost home, right? He made a vow to God that he was going to go back to Bethel, but he's a day's journey away here as he stops off in Shechem, okay? He stops in Shechem, Probably some, you know, there was better trading and different things going on there. So it was advantageous to Jacob the schemer, right, to spend some time in Bethel or in Shechem before he went all the way home to Bethel to where he vowed he would go. But we're going to see today the disastrous consequences of that choice to stop before he got to where he told God he was going to go. A couple questions if you're taking notes. Couple questions to ponder as we wrestle with this dark story today. First, what does the foolishness of the cross that we just read about in 1 Corinthians, what does the foolishness of the cross have to say to a story like this? What does the foolishness of the cross have to say to a story like this? And second, how does Jesus' death and resurrection help us make sense of the chaos in this story? Okay, we read this on this side of the cross, right? But we still need to be able to read this story through that lens. So let's dig in. Genesis chapter 34, we're going to read the whole chapter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. 
So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife." The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not our livestock, their property, their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours. Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute. The word of the Lord. 
We're going to look at this story in three different parts. The first one is a foolish abuse of power. It's the first seven verses. We see here very quickly in the first four verses, we are confronted with this tragic event. And we're introduced here to some of the main characters in the story. First, Dinah. She is the daughter of Leah. There's some significance there, right? Leah was the wife who Jacob didn't really care for. And it says that she went out to see the women of the land. Okay? It's not a wise move by Dinah. Up to this point in Genesis, when we see this phrase, the women of the land, it has negative connotations. Dinah, first of all, you know, they shouldn't be here, right? (laughs) They shouldn't be living in Shechem. But Dinah should not be wandering off and going and visiting the women of the land. Now, there's a little bit of speculation what, what this could mean, but it is not a place that she should be alone as a young woman going out to visit the women of the land. And then we're introduced to Shechem, the son of Hamor. If you look back just a few verses, at the end of chapter 33, Jacob bought land from Hamor's sons, and Shechem was the prince of the land. So there's no way that Jacob and Shechem didn't know each other, right? That they didn't already have some dealings, that they weren't already associated with each other. And again, maybe a little speculation, but I'm guessing that Shechem knew about Dinah, right? He probably had his eye on Dinah for a while. This isn't just something that just happened out of the blue. But instead of going to Jacob, right, and negotiating, saying, hey, I'd like to get to know your daughter, or I'd like to marry your daughter, right? Instead of doing that, like he does later on, he abuses his power here. The the three words that are used there in verse 2 are very strong words. He seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. Again, this is very explicit language. Shechem rapes Dinah. There's no way around it. And please hear what I'm about to say here, okay? This is never okay, all right? This type of action is never okay under any circumstances. It's, you know, it's not, it's not, we know from the beginning, right? If we read our Bibles, the people of Israel knew, right? Sex is meant for one man and one woman in a committed marriage relationship. No questions. So this violates God's creation ordinance, right? It violates God's creation law. And if you read through the book of Genesis, I think you should be rightfully shocked at how many times sexual sin happens over and over to the people of God and how destructive it is to relationships. It happens all over. We're not even done with it in Genesis. There's more to come, right? So we need to pay attention to that, okay? We need to see the consequences of what they dealt with because of it. And throughout all of Scripture, we see it. So all sexual relationships outside of the marriage covenant are sinful. No ifs, ands, or buts. No questions asked. This creation this creation mandate, it applies to everyone, everywhere, at all times. Right? And we also need to know, kind of, contextually, historically, where this event took place. This is before the Mosaic Law. This is before the Ten Commandments, and it's before all the other laws, do not commit adultery, and all these things. But again, this creation 
mandate of God obviously applies. And then the people of Israel, as they move into the land, start interacting with these other groups. Once they get the law, they get the Ten Commandments and all these laws, we're going to start to get some more specific things that deal with situations like this. So Deuteronomy chapter 22, if you want to go read that later, it's in the ESV. The section is titled, Laws Concerning Sexual Immorality. And there are three scenarios in that chapter that are very similar to this one. And there's basically three different consequences that would happen. One is that if the, if the man does this and the woman cries out for help and she's not a part of it, the man will get stoned. The other one is that if, they are, if she's kind of in on it, if there's this sexual immorality, they will both get stoned. And the other one is that the man will pay the father and the woman will become his wife, okay? So there are, there are provisions for situations like this. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there were, there were laws that dealt with situations like this. All that said, that does not justify anything that Shechem did here. It's not okay to say, oh, well, I'll just go rape this girl, and then maybe I can pay her father, and she'll become my wife, right? No, he's sinning against God. No questions asked. And then we see here, again, this is kind of interesting, but we see that he actually, it says that he loves her, and I'm sure this is twisted in some way, but he's, and he speaks tenderly to her, and he wants to take her for his wife, okay? Again, I'm not going to, I don't know his motives, I don't know all of that, but it's interesting, and it's, if you compare it to another story where David's son rapes his sister, and then he, he hates her, and that's like, uh, so this is kind of an opposite in that, but again, his response afterwards doesn't change what he had done. It doesn't change his actions. And it doesn't change the outcome that he and all of his people are going to suffer because of this. Next, we're going to see the reaction of Jacob and his sons. Verse 5, Jacob heard that they had defiled his daughter Dinah. This word here is very explicit. It means that she was made unclean, Right? Partly, obviously, just because of what had physically happened. Another part is that it was an uncircumcised Gentile who lay with her. So she is now physically and really spiritually, as a, as a part of the people of Israel, defiled because of this relationship. And Jacob, as her father, should have been outraged, right? He should have been furious. But what do we see about Jacob? Jacob. It says he holds his peace, right? He keeps silent. He doesn't say anything. This is foolish abuse of power as a father. Shechem had foolish abuse of power as a prince of the land. This is a foolish abuse of power here by Jacob, by doing nothing, by saying nothing. Instead, he waits until Dinah's brothers arrive, and we later learn it's Simeon and Levi, who are Dinah's full brothers, they're her birth brothers by the same two parents. They're also children of Leah, and there's a whole bunch of dynamics that are going on in this story and that are gonna, we're going to continue to see in the story of Joseph, so kind of be paying attention to those things as we keep going. But Jacob is likely totally indifferent to these children, right? They're the children of Leah. He just doesn't care. He favors Rachel's kids, and he's just like, whatever, This is a sad indictment on Jacob's character. Then the the brothers come, right? Dinah's brothers. They're angry. 
They're angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel, for such a thing must not be done. And this word outrageous, it means foolish. It means to, do, to willfully do something sinful. It's outrageous. It should not be done. And they were right. This is a foolish thing to be done in Israel. But it's a foolish thing to be done anywhere, right? It's a foolish thing to happen in any land at any time. I don't know if you saw the CNN article earlier this week about the report that came out of North Korea, a very sad and tragic report. This was just on on Wednesday. The title of the article was, We Are at the Mercy of Men, Reports of Rape and Sexual Abuse in North Korea. There's a 98-page report by Human Rights Watch, which is a human rights activist group, and they interviewed over 100 people who have since fled from North Korea. And there are estimates that 90% of all North Korean women have been sexually assaulted. 90%. Can you imagine that? And it's almost always coming at the hands of police officers, government officials, anyone in power. 90%. And in 2015, in North Korea... The whole year in the whole country, five rape convictions. So do the math, right? I don't know how many, how many millions, but 90% of women being sexually assaulted, five rape convictions in the whole year. But that's North Korea, right? I mean, that's this atheistic regime, this totalitarian government where there's no rule of law. I mean, here in the West, right? We got our stuff together, you know, right, in America. Like, we don't do those kind of things. I mean, like our multi-billion dollar pornography industry that is just harmless, right, as long as you do it in the privacy of your own home, right? Or Hollywood, where people are rightfully outraged about the things that are going on, right? The Me Too movement and all these things, rightfully outraged. But yet Hollywood continues to pump out trash over and over and over that defies God and just flies in the face of of a Christian sexual ethic, right? As the people of God, we should have the same response as Simeon and Levi. We should be angry and indignant at the state of affairs around us, right? Just as they were. We should say such outrageous things should not be done in Israel, in North Korea, in America, or anywhere in the world, right? Well, at least we have the church, though, right? I mean, the stuff doesn't happen in the church, right? It does, right? And we've heard the stories, especially the last year or so, the stories that have been coming out, the abuses of power, by leaders in the church. And this should sadden us, right? And we need to talk about these things, right? I need to stand up here and talk about these things. It's not easy. It's not fun, right? But we need to talk about these things. Always, right? Not just reactionary. It's not just gonna, I'm not just going to say, oh, this thing happened, so I'm going to go do a sermon series on you know, why we should be against whatever, Right? No, 
we're going to preach through the Bible, right? And when we come to stories like this, we're going to talk about these things. We're going to talk about our culture. I'm not going to try to get up here and have a hobby horse and just pick my favorite topics. I mean, do you think I really wanted to preach on this passage? Actually, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I had considered skipping over it, and I, just when I made up my initial kind of schedule, and we had our elder meeting, and one of the dear brothers who has, has, has some years on me, he said, you need to preach on, on chapter 34. And I, I, you know, took his words to heart and went back and said, yeah, I do. <laughs> I really, and so I rearranged the schedule, and we might go a little longer in Genesis, you know, than we planned, but that's okay. Um, we, can't, we can't pass over these things. We can't try to avoid these things, and we need to talk about these things. And again, like I said, there's, there's more to come, right, in Genesis. It's gonna, there's going to be more of it. So how should a story like this inform us? How should it inform us in this moment in history? I want to speak first to the men in the room. You guys have a God-given responsibility. You have a moral duty to respect and protect the women in your life, okay? I don't care if it's your wife, your sister, your mom, right? You have a responsibility to protect the women in your life. And women are to be treated with dignity and respect, not as means to fulfill some sexual desire. Okay, that goes for all of us, right? Married men, single men, young guys, right? That applies to all of us. Fathers, you need to protect your daughters, okay? Out there, right? Where Dinah was, out there has never been safe, right? It's not like, I mean, at any point in history, a young girl, Dinah may have been like 14 or 15 at this time, a young girl just being out on her own is not a safe place to be, right? So, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of keep our kids around and, and things like that. But the out there is now in here, right? With technology, with the things we have in our homes, right? I'm not saying you should never, like, my kids play iPad and we try to monitor, you know, but fathers, you need to be careful of these things to protect your daughters. Obviously protect your sons too, but we must be diligent in this area. It's not worth the consequences, right? It's not worth seeing their lives destroyed. And to the women in the room, you have a right to be treated with dignity and respect by the men in your life. I know that some of you have been hurt, you've been mistreated, you've been put in compromising situations, and that's not okay. And you shouldn't feel like you need to keep silent about those things. I would encourage you to, if you're in a place where you need to talk to somebody, I would encourage you to find someone, find a safe person to talk to. Uh, if, it's, if you feel comfortable in a church, the place to go is to the elders. You talk to the elders about any, if there's a situation going on in the church, the elders need to know about it. And if the elders 
are part of the problem, then you go to the presbytery, which is one beautiful thing about being Presbyterian, right? We have an authority structure in place. We have a safety structure in place where if I'm out of line or the elders are out of line, we have people above us that we are accountable to, okay? This should be a safe place for everyone. And it starts with the leaders, okay? It starts with us being responsible in these areas. And as Christians, right, as the people of God, as a church, we all have a responsibility in this area. We all have a responsibility to make sure that people feel safe, that our children feel safe, that young women feel safe, right? And we want to be diligent about those things. Okay. Let's shift gears. That's some heavy stuff. Um... But now we're going we're gonna to turn and we're going to look at the outcome of these events. We're going to see what happened as a result of Shechem's sin. The next section is a foolish attempt at peace. A foolish attempt at peace, verses 8 to 24. So Hamor offers, offers a proposal to Jacob in verses 8 through 12 that they intermarry, that they dwell in the land together, that they trade, that Jacob's people get property And ultimately, this is all because he's just trying to get Dinah as Shechem's wife, right? The first part of the proposal, this is really interesting, saying, marry with us, dwell in the land, trade, get property. This is a shortcut to the blessing that God had already promised them, isn't it? God had already promised to give land and descendants, right? To give blessings. But Jacob is at it again. He's at his old ways. He's trying to do God's thing on his own terms. And Jacob actually doesn't respond to this deal. He doesn't respond to Hamor's offer. Instead, his sons get in in the mix. And notice how they answer Shechem and Hamor and his sons in verse 13. They answer him deceitfully. Well, that's an interesting word, isn't it? (laughs) We've seen that before, right? Like father, like sons here. They answer him deceitfully. But not only do they deceive him, this is, don't miss this, this is a a sad indictment. They deceive him through, they deceive them through an appeal to religious ritual, right? Circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant, God's promise to the people. And they try to use that to trick them and deceive them. In verse 14, they rightfully answer that it would be a disgrace to give their sister to one who is uncircumcised. And again, that was one of the reasons why we said that Dinah was defiled because she was laid with someone who was uncircumcised. So they make this proposal that that Shechem and Hamor and all the city become one people with them. They go back to the men of the city and notice how they don't they don't tell them what had happened, right? They don't say, hey, Dinah's locked up in our house and Shechem just raped her and these guys are really mad, right? And we need to try to do something to get off the hook. They just say, oh, hey, like, look and see. Here's what's going on. These guys, they want to come and dwell with us. That uh, says they are at peace with us, right? That's their report. These men are at peace with us in verse 21. Let us dwell in the land and trade in it for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. 
And then in verse 23, they say, Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. There's some tragic irony in this response, right? Because their plan is going to totally backfire, right? They thought that they could get all these things, and actually, they're going to lose it all. We see foolishness on so many levels in this section. The foolishness of Jacob's sons to deceive the Hivites using the sign of the covenant that God had given to them. The foolishness to talk about becoming one people with a pagan nation who did not worship the Lord. And the foolishness of the Hivites to accept these terms thinking that they could gain by intermarriage with the people of Israel. But let's be careful not to dismiss this story as some ancient event, right? Something that doesn't have spiritual significance for us as Christians today. What's the point here? What's the point of this story spiritually? It's don't be unequally yoked with the world, right? Don't hope for this peaceful alliance with the world in order to bring about some other purpose, something you're trying to accomplish that's not what God has intended for his people. We've got the midterm elections coming up, right, in a couple days. We've got Christians all over the place, all over the map, where Christians are, where Christians are voting. People aligning with different political parties. I'm not saying that hoping for change is a bad thing, right? Like, I think we all would agree that this country needs to change in a lot of different ways. It, may, it always does, right? I mean... It's not like anything, there's, there's nothing different today than there was a hundred years ago in terms of our need for the gospel, right? And our need for justice in our society. But is it through the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of America, right? Is it through that or is it through the kingdom of God that true change is going to come in our world I'm not saying that Christians should disengage from politics. We know clearly from Scripture that, and we believe that God is sovereign, right? He puts people in places of power. I think it's wise for Christians to be in those places at times, to have influence in our governments. But where is our hope? When things are so polarized, when things are so divisive and divided, Where is our hope and how are we seeking peace? Peace in this world or peace with this world? I think it's a great moment to be a follower of Christ, to be alive in this moment, right? And to be a follower of Christ and to be able to to engage with people and talk about these things. You know, maybe maybe a couple generations ago it was just kind of business as usual and it Nobody was rocking the boat as much, and the church was, you know, things were pretty happy-go-lucky. But, you know, if you want to, if you want to stand up for, for God's word, if you want to stand up for the exclusivity of the gospel, like, those aren't popular things today, right? But it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be a follower of Christ and to be able to engage people in our culture over these things. We have an opportunity, I think, in those things to show the world where our true hope is. 
It's not in the ways of the world. It's not in politics. It's not in all these other things. Just like Abraham, we've talked about this, Abraham and his descendants, they were sojourners, right? They were strangers and exiles in this world. And that's what we continue to be as Christians. And again, I think we have a great opportunity That distinct identity, that distinct identity as the people of God, it was at stake here for them, right? We see another foolish act that put their distinct identity in jeopardy. This last section here, verses 25 to 31, a foolish act of payback. This is the part of the story where the consequences are going to have lasting effects for a long time on a lot of people. And just to clearly say it, there are no winners in this story, all right? Like, everyone loses in this story. There's nothing from an earthly perspective good that comes out of this. No winners. Simeon and Levi, they go and attack all the males in the city. They kill them all. They kill Hamor and Shechem. They get revenge. They rescue Dinah, their sister. Then they plunder the city and they take everything, right? They take the women and children, they take all the goods, and they make their way and they head home, right? There is no justification for this act at all. If you're familiar with Genesis chapter 49, Jacob pronounces a blessing on his 12 sons, right? But really, Simeon and Levi pretty much get a curse, in Genesis 49, he talks, he's saying, cursed be their anger. He says that they will be divided and they will be scattered. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really dig into this, but we know that Levi, the, the tribe of Levi, Levi becomes the priest, and they actually don't have, they don't get any land. They don't actually inherit any land. So that may be a part of the curse. Now, we, it's interesting that we still see God's grace there, right? God allows the people of Levi to become the priests, the ones who serve in the temple, but they don't actually inherit any land, and that, that could be a direct consequence here of this action. But then the, the last thing I want us to look at here is to notice Jacob's response, right? Jacob's immediate response here in verse 30 after he hears what Simeon and Levi have done. And notice his name, right? It's Jacob, not Israel, right? Why does Moses call him Jacob and not Israel in this story? Jacob responds in verse 30. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the, Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob is more concerned about his own skin, right? His own personal safety. More than his daughter's well-being. We don't even get a word about it, right? He doesn't say anything about his daughter's well-being. He's more concerned about his own skin, his own reputation, than he is about this deceitful plot of his sons. And Jacob seems to be back to his old ways again. Well, this should, just, this should be the end of the Bible, right? <laughs> like, this should be the end of the story of the people of Israel. They should have just been destroyed and, you know, I don't know, God chooses another people or whatever. But like, this should be the end of 
the story of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It should just, it should just end right here. But it doesn't, right? Which is mind-blowing. Like, God wiped out the world and with the flood, right? He, he scattered with the Tower of Babel. I mean, you read this story and you're like, all right, what, like, what's God going to do here, right? <laughs> like, there should be something big happening here. If you take your worship guide out, there's a great quote here from Gordon Wenham, Old Testament scholar on the front of the worship guide. It kind of summarizes this chapter. It says, here on the verge of the total fulfillment of the promise and his vow, Canaanite lust, his own cowardice, and his son's folly all combined to destroy the prospect of Jacob's return to his father's house in peace. Yet he does make it, as often in Genesis, the invincibility of the promises is once again demonstrated. The invincibility of God's promises are demonstrated. Divine grace triumphs despite human sin. Divine grace triumphs despite human sin. And that's the story of our lives, isn't it? If you're sitting here today, it's because divine grace triumphed in spite of your sin. And I'm going to keep, well, we're going to be done with Jacob next week, but I'm going to keep hammering this home, right? We are Jacob, right? We're just like Jacob. God works in our lives. God transforms us. He does these amazing things in our lives. And what do we do? Back to our old ways, right? Back to our scheming, still reverting to our old ways, acting foolishly, and suffering the consequences for our actions. And, you know, it's, it's not the big sins, right? It's not like, you know, doing the horrible things all the time. It's not always those big outward things that are our biggest problem. Again, the question I asked in the beginning, what does the foolishness of the cross have to say to something like this? What does the foolishness of the cross have to say to us when we struggle with sin over and over, when we're, when we're like Jacob and we revert back to our old ways? And what does it look like when sin's consequences are met by sin's conqueror? I want to read part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. We looked at 18 to 31. I just want to look at verses 26 to 31. Again, it's on page 952 if you have the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Kind of reminds us of Jacob, doesn't it? Right? Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. 
because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in Christ and what he has done for you. As you come to this table, come limping down the aisle, boasting in how God has wounded you and restored you, right? About how he has made you new. About how divine grace has triumphed in your life despite your own sin. Despite your daily rebellion against God. He continues in his grace to come to you. To pick you up. To make you new. It is because of him you are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, this table is open to you. If you have put your trust in Christ, you are invited to come to the table. It's not just for those who are part of Living Stone. It's not just for Presbyterians. It's for all those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation.